Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey gang, welcome to this week's episode of Ranching Reboot. This week, we've got a really great guest for you. He's got four generations of experience pasture finishing hogs. He sells to Charlie Trotter's World Famous in Chicago. We talk about truth and labeling, and then we tackle one of our favorite subjects on Ranching Reboot podcast, meat packer concentration. We talk about the velocity of money and how food security is national security. Today's guest is Greg Gunthorpe. Welcome, Greg, to the show. Greg, welcome to the show. And uh, we'll just start off like we we really haven't met. We've just exchanged a little bit uh, over Twitter. So why don't you go ahead and, and tell us about yourself uh, a little bit? Sure. Um, great to be on today. Uh, Greg Gunthorpe, uh, uh, my family, uh, wife and uh, son, uh, we own uh, Gunthorpe Farms in uh, LaGrange, Indiana. I grew up on a um, diversified crop and livestock farm. Uh, my parents still own it, uh, butts up to our farm, uh, about a 600 acre um, uh, corn, soybeans, wheat, alfalfa, actual diversified uh, crop and livestock farm, finished some uh, cattle until 1985. And uh, uh, my family's uh, farrowed uh, pigs on pasture for at least four generations. Uh, sold them on the commodity market until uh, 1998. And uh, just a few years before that, 94, uh, my wife and I just uh, newly married. Um, my dad um, said that the hog market was done for the independent small hog farmer, said that um, it's time to sell the sows. I said I wasn't ready to quit raising hogs. And so me and my wife went off on our own. Um, 1998 found out my dad was right. The market for the independent hog farmer was done. My wife and I sold live pigs for less than what my grandpa sold them for in the depression. Uh, we got, we netted five cents a pound on uh, one pot load of hogs. Uh, by the time they took trucking and insurance and docked us, uh, and, uh, what little equity we had, we lost in 98. And I still said that I'm not ready to be done raising pigs. And I said, you know, I'd spent a summer in England and Scotland right after I'd graduated uh, uh, in 1988 uh, with the um, FFA and the Young Farmers of the United Kingdom and stayed on a couple, uh, well, I stayed on 11 different farms, but a couple of them were direct marketing back in 88. And I kind of thought it was uh, crazy at the time that they were making their living uh, selling at farmers markets and selling to chefs and selling to other individuals. I thought, man, that looks like way too much work. Uh, but I got to see that kind of firsthand. And in 1998, when we got nothing for our pigs, I thought, you know, maybe we can eke out a living if I can make some connections with some chefs in the big city. And a little bit of luck and a little bit of fate, 
we sold our first pig to a restaurant in uh, September of 1998. Got more for that one pig than was getting for whole truckloads of them at the time. Uh, but um, and as luck would have it, um, the um, place that we started uh, was uh, Charlie Trotter in Chicago. And, you know, I was just a farm boy from Northeast Indiana. I didn't know who Charlie Trotter was. I wasn't connected to the foodie world. But uh, Wine Spectator magazine that same month uh, rated him the number one restaurant in the world for food and wine. So, like I said, a little bit of luck and a little bit of fate. We started at the top. And once you were selling pigs to Charlie Trotter, it's just kind of grown uh, word of mouth from there. You know, other people wanted to try it. A uh, couple years later, we made a really good connection with uh, um, Chef Rick Bayless, Frontier Grill. He's been our largest customer for about 20 years. And up until uh, COVID came, you know, we were rolling along pretty, I say pretty decent because the, um, you know, the, we'd actually, you know, there, there's a sizable group. It's not huge, but there's a sizable group of direct marketers in the country. And I think we'd finally made enough splash that we woke the big guys up and, you know, the, um, I always tell people they've, uh, co-opted virtually every message from uh, every niche that we've produced and uh, without really making any meaningful changes, uh, they've started stepping into our market. And about 2015 on, it's kind of got a lot more difficult to be a um, niche producer, but it's it's been an amazing journey. Uh, you know, we're still raising pastured pigs. Uh, we got some pastured poultry on the farm, uh, raising, uh, still raising turkeys. Um, and uh, we got some sheep this year. Uh, my family, uh, my dad and grandpa sold the ewes in 1968, two years before I was born. Uh, me and my son uh, brought them back this year. So um, we're out here having fun, have a USDA inspected processing plan on the farm. Uh, you know, our customer bases, uh, some uh, online retailers, uh, restaurants, um, some universities, some other uh, meat shops. Really diverse. That sounds great. Yeah. So, I, uh, yeah, it's, uh, we, yeah, we're, you know, we're, uh, we're definitely unique because, uh, there's not very many of us, uh, little, um, integrated operations, you know, and the, we, we jumped off the cliff in 98. And like I said, it's been an amazing journey. It's, uh, not been simple at all. Um, but you know, it's, uh, I would do it again. Uh, uh, actually, I'd love to have get to do it again because uh, we made some big mistakes through the process, but we survived some. Well, you mentioned that the that the Packers of the big guys were starting to invade and cut into some of your niches. How how is that working? How are they doing? Um, that? um you know the um, we got ran out of the commodity market in '98, and I feel like the um, in some days I wake up and feel like uh, what we did was just take on an awful lot more risk to have the commodity guys try to run us out of this. Um, and, you know, if you go into the um, uh, conventional grocery store, and I consider Whole Foods as um, conventional grocery store, so any grocery store you go into, um, it's just about impossible to find meat or poultry that doesn't have what I call like to call fluffy labels on it, whether it's natural, whether it's, uh, you know, cage-free, whether it's antibiotic-free, whether it's... Uh, um, grass fed, whether it's, you name it, there's, there's a label on virtually all, uh, local, um, you name it. Um, and there's only a handful of, uh, producers like us in the whole country. I, you know, I was arguing with somebody on Twitter the other day and said it was half a dozen. And, uh, when we got all said and done, and I 
realistically I guess it's probably closer to two dozen in the country. So it's maybe 25 uh, producers around the United States that are actually what the um, consumer thinks that they're getting. Uh, most of that, you know, every one of those things I mentioned, uh, cage-free, organic, um, you know, the um, cage-free organic eggs, 10% uh, of those come from uh, one farm about 100 wow. miles north of us uh, that has about a million hens. Nobody that's buying cage-free organic eggs thinks they're getting hens from a farm that right. has a million uh, hens. I mean, not a single person thinks that. Uh, or organic milk. We just seen last week the um, uh, that whole group out in the Northeast that's uh, got their pink slips. They're getting cut off from uh, organic milk uh, in a year um, from uh, Danon, from Horizon. Uh, you know, we all know that that's because uh, they've got um, 10 and 20,000 cow um, confinement organic dairies that don't even come close to meeting the um, Code of Federal Regulations in Chapter 7 for the grazing requirements. Organic cows are supposed, are supposed to get 30% of their diet direct actually harvested from grazing. Uh, well, you how, can't how are they getting away with it? Um, you know, there, there's loopholes. And, and so that's, that's like my biggest concern with the organic labeling is it's, it's really misled what the intentions of, of the whole label were, right? You know, the, um, uh, I, I'm not going to get too terribly political. I, I like to get a little political okay. at times, but uh, you um, can if you want. <laughs> you are. We love doing that here. So yeah. I always tell people the Department of Justice, the Federal Trade Commission, the USDA. They've really been on vacation on all these issues since the 1970s, and it's been both sides of the aisle. Um, when you get all said and done, labeling laws in this United States are uh, go to the biggest bidder. Um, they. You know, we have agency capture issues in all of our um, federal government, and they've largely been able to either write the labeling laws or they've been able to convince those guys on how they interpret the labeling laws. So, you know, the um, some of those organic dairies consider grazing as the, um, uh, as far as I can tell, the, um, you know, they're sprouting that fodder. They're calling that oh, they're, they're calling fire. that cows grazing. No one, no one that buys organic milk thinks that taking small grains, adding water to it, and letting it sprout is a cow grazing. I mean, come on, that's just absolute bullshit. But you know, if you have a organic standard that's owned by the USDA and it becomes the lowest common denominator of who will certify what, and there's some certifiers out there that are just absolutely questionable, but it's not just organics, it's everything. The um, Virtually no one realizes that if you go uh, to the grocery store and buy grass-fed beef, uh, even with a product of the USA label on it, 85% of that is foreign beef. Australian, yeah. Australia, New because, Zealand. Yeah, because it's uh, able to be packaged in the United States. That's what um, they convinced the USDA that that's the production is the packaging. That's a bunch of bullshit too. I mean, excuse my language, but um, I mean that that's not that's not what anybody thinks, you know. So I mean, the um, natural uh, that that is completely worthless on a meat and poultry label because that um, you know you can even read from the asterisk that just means it's minimally processed. Um, all meat and poultry meets the natural definition by 
USDA, yet Consumer Reports says 34% of people buying that think that it means that it's organic. So, I mean, it's all, that's why I say the big, the big packers have stepped into that. The, you live in Colorado, uh, virtually all local beef comes from Aspen Ridge, which is uh, JBS's 100 plus thousand uh, feedlot. Um, nobody thinks JBS with 100,000 plus steers on feed is local, but that's what local is if you're in Colorado. So, I mean, it's, it's right. um, small farmers can't compete in the retail um, space. So just like us, you know, the, even if you're, you know, we've, we've sold as much as a million pounds of pastured pork and poultry a year, and you have to go around the um, big guys, you know, you have to sell in places that they either can't or won't. And we'll never rebuild uh, local and regional food systems until we actually have access to the market. So how, like, okay, so those places where the big guys can't or won't sell, what, what are some of those places and, and how are you getting in there? Um, you know, we, we largely, um, especially pre-COVID, we largely built our market around, the, um, you know, I tell people we're, we're selling the ultimate dining experience. We raise a Duroc and a Duroc uh, Berkshire crossbred um, pig, uh, significantly higher uh, meat quality than the um, conventional uh, pig, um, raised on pasture, uh, processed here on the farm. Uh, delivered fresh to a restaurant. The big guys can't compete with that on a flavor standpoint. Uh, can't compete right. with that on a freshness standpoint. So, you know, there there's some chefs out there that really appreciate the what we do in that regards. And like I said, the big guys can't compete on that. So, uh, you know, if, if we're not just competing on price and we're instead competing on uh, service and quality, we have a chance selling to restaurants um you know and we seen uh last week i'm sure you guys followed uh herzog's um you know uh quality and service uh um qu quality and quality and service um you know and they're an excellent example of it and we've seen it so many times over the years uh you know our our best customers are ones uh where the chef is also the owner and so you know, he's the one that makes the final decision because uh, otherwise you deal with something that's a big chain or a big group or whatever. You can have the greatest relationship with the chef, uh, but you got to have every single person above them in their chain of command that's also on board with buying from you because it only takes it only takes one of them to kick you out the door. It takes all of them for you to stay there. The bigger that organization gets above the chef that wants the quality food, the less likelihood there is that they're probably going to buy it because more people, you know, more management above that level means they're more concerned with profit than with quality. Right, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, the, the reality is they can buy something else in the marketplace. It comes back to what we were just talking about. They can buy something else in the marketplace that's got some fancy label on the package and they're say oh yeah, this stuff is really better, but you know, this over here is only 25% over commodity price because that's what most of the big guys get for those fancy labeled stuff is 25 to 40% over commodity um, for doing basically nothing. And we can't compete against that. Mm -hmm. So you get kicked out the door. And so it's like a big roller coaster ride. And then that manager goes away and you talk to the chef and you get back in the door. Yeah, start, over. start over again. Yeah. 
So is that like one of the biggest barriers for, so I actually just looked you up on Twitter. <laughs> so I get kind of an idea of what we're, what you're into, but, but you had mentioned like competing for retail space and, and I think, is that one of the biggest barriers of getting retail space is talking to the actual decision makers of the board and getting approval, or is it because these big commodity guys can, can offer this weird scale that isn't necessarily the greatest quality? Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it, mostly comes down to um price and supply you know the um uh they they don't want to deal with a bunch of uh smaller producers even though even though they give the impression you know um i don't like to beat up on whole foods but you know uh most everybody understands that whole foods uh you know has made their market on claiming that they're buying from small family farms uh but you know they don't want to deal with a bunch of small family farms. They want to deal with a couple outlets for their supply. Um, you know, and we can't compete on convenience, yeah, right? right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, you know, it, it's a lot more work to um, have a um, local and regional food system. And it's a lot more work. And, uh, you know, the that's where we've found some uh, chefs uh, that make it work and that are willing to put in the effort. And when we started, uh, we kind of uh, stayed away from retail uh, mostly. Um, and, you know, we, we pursued a little bit of uh, retail direct to individuals, but uh, we couldn't get the volume that we needed because we made that necessary step of building a processing plant. We needed enough volume to run through our processing plant. And our easiest way to get some volume was to work with a handful of chefs rather than working with thousands of individual customers. Some days I wonder whether that was the right decision or not, but you know, it, it is what it is. If you had to do your meat plan again, would you, or would you do it differently? Um, yeah, the, um, is the necessary evil to do what we do. Um, but if there was processing, um, and especially if uh, mm. we could have got processing done at someone that was at a slightly larger scale than us, um, we'd have been better off doing that. But at the time, that probably would have been uh, Ampac in Chicago or uh, something like that, which uh, didn't survive. So we'd have probably been in a world of hurts anyways. And, you know, realistically to sell to restaurants, we'd have never been able to do what we did without us actually having the flexibility of uh, raising or lowering the number of animals we processed each week and cutting each and every one of them to a bunch of different restaurants, the way they wanted them cut and the way they wanted them packaged. So yeah, we'd probably build the processing plan again, but it's some days it's more headaches than others. And right now with the whole labor situation, it's, it's pretty rough owning a little processing plant. Can you talk a little bit more, more about that? Are you having trouble getting guys to cut and package or are you having oh, trouble yeah. getting inspectors? Um, no, we've one thing, you know, I probably bash uh, USDA Food Safety Inspection Service probably as much as anyone in the whole country. And I think the um, uh, Secretary Vilsack and uh, the Administrator, Mr. Kicker and all that, they would probably put me on that list right up there at the top. But um, one thing I always say good about USDA is that um, I think in our 17 or 18 years here at the farm that we've had USDA inspection, I think there's only ever been one time uh, that we wanted to slaughter that um, we didn't have an inspector. And that was one that literally 
walked off our line when his 12 hours was up and didn't even tell us that, you know, cause we would have probably just stopped so that if he absolutely had to go home. But other than that, we've, we've always got an inspector. So we've been fortunate in that regards. Um, now, sometimes we get some uh, crazy ones. I always like to talk about that there's two groups. So, uh, well, there's actually three groups. There's the sane and reasonable group, which I think makes up about 80% of USDA. And then you got the ones on the one end I like to call them the lazies and you got the ones on the other end that are the crazies and, you know, they, they can definitely make your life really interesting. And, you know, the um, unintended consequence of uh, regulations and uh, food safety standards is that uh, it costs substantially more for a little operation to deal with them than it does a big operation. But, you know, we do, when you get all said and done, I, I don't know that I can really, argue about um, or say that there was any one specific uh, food safety regulation that I would want gone. I think that there's been some times that we definitely have a different interpretation than some of what USDA, but um, I think we'd be largely operating the, in the same uh, manner, um, whether we had USDA. Now, um, employee-wise, um, I don't think most people realize that even when labor is not tight, um, it's really, really difficult to staff a slaughter plant. There's a large percentage of our population yes. that is not going to work in a slaughter plant, no matter what. Um, and, you know, I, I think part of that is that we're just so far um, removed and so far um, disconnected from our food supply. Um, I think part of that is a misconception of what people think happens mm -hmm. in very small slaughter plants, because, you know, we get our um, chefs and customers come out all the time and a lot of them say man I was expecting it to be a lot more gross than that I was expecting it to be more violent I was expecting you know they they list off bunches of things and you know it's not that I mean don't get me wrong there's parts of a slaughter plant and a processing plant that's too cold too hot too wet too dry I mean you're dealing with live animals it's dirty it's I mean it's it's difficult work. Everything that we do on the farm and everything we do on the processing plant is hard work. And, you know, there's large portions of our society that is not hard work anymore. So, um, yeah. you know, and I, I think farms and processing plants, but I think slaughter plants in general have a more difficult time on staffing. And when, you know, there just aren't enough people to go around, it gets really, really scary to own a slaughter plant when, you know, they can go make as much money flipping burgers as you can afford to pay. And, you know, it's, it's definitely an uncertain time. And then, you know, you have a pipeline of animals coming in because you're scheduled, yeah. you know, you're scheduled so far out. Are, do you just do your own stuff or you, do you do stuff um, for other folks? No, we, um, one of our flexes uh, after COVID was that um, we've started to process pigs for other people. We always um, chose in the past not to do it mainly over uh, biosecurity issues, but we put some changes right. in place and, uh, you know, and especially since the, the shortages was so bad, um, everywhere, um, we, we slaughter and process some pigs for some other people now. And it, that actually, um, uh, works out quite well. We used to try to slaughter some chickens for other people and the labor requirements on, uh, poultry is so much higher per pound than pigs. And that never really worked. Is oh, it really? You know, the, um, we had we we quit doing chickens this year. We did pastured chickens about one hundred and twenty thousand of them a year until uh, this year. And um, what's the main thing? Is it 
the feathers um, or no no i mean or... we're we're actually really really good at uh um scalding and plucking them uh but, we, but oh yeah yeah, yeah. Um, so the feathers wasn't a was never really a huge issue the big problem is the you know the bird weighs it's just the physics of it the bird weighs you know four and a half okay. six pounds and there's still tasks that you have to do on that and at our scale we couldn't justify the millions of dollars worth of equipment to do that with machines. So our chicken line would take 20 to 22 people on the line to do about the exact same number of pounds of chickens in a morning that we can do with seven or eight people on our um, pig line. So, you know, we have just way, way more dollars um, in processing in chicken. And when you get all said and done, you have chicken and the, um, this whole industrialization of our food supply oh, go, goes down a path. And I don't think most of us ever, you know, we talk about it, but I don't think we really stop and think about it. The chicken industry has done one thing really, really well, and I actually hate them for it, but they've made chicken really, really cheap. And when you make chicken really, yes. really cheap, there's absolutely no way for a small operation that wants to do something by hand um, raise them where the chicken actually ought to be, where it, you know, gets to scratch on the ground, gets to chase a few bugs, gets to actually see the sun. Um, you can't afford to do that because uh, when you get all said and done, the American people still think that chicken should be cheap. And pastured chicken should cost as much as uh, beef or um, pork because it costs as much to produce. But people are like, no matter where we sold it, it still had to be the cheapest item. They removed. Had to be the cheapest right? item on the menu. Yep. Well, before John Tyson figured it, before John Tyson figured it out, chicken was one of the most expensive meats. Yep. Really? Oh, I didn't yeah, know like that. Yeah, like in the 20s and 30s, Depression era, nobody ate chicken. I mean, the farmers ate chicken because that's, you know, they always had chickens, but nobody in the cities was eating chicken. You know, um, you guys know Will Harris, White Oaks Pastor? Every yeah. once in a while, he, he yeah. sends me a screenshot uh um, from the history that I think the one is from like 1916 a menu and the chicken was more expensive than the beef on the menu in 1916 and yeah That's wild Will Harris hopefully another future guest on the Ranching Reboot podcast um, Will and his southern drawl I think that you could listen to him for an hour read the phone book <laughs> <laughs> I when I met Will uh, it was out at the Regenerate Conference in 2019. And I don't know if I've told this story on air before or not, but uh, it was, we had just come out of a big session and I saw Will Harris. I went up and I introduced myself and I started talking to him and then up walks Mike Calicrate. <laughs> and if you could imagine Will and Mike Calicrate for an hour and a half, I just stood okay. there just, just oh, soaking yeah. it all in. I mean, th those two guys are legends. Um, I think that um, if I'm not mistaken, I think I spoke at that conference um, and I think I had lunch with Mike right before I went up and spoke. Uh, the, I should send you the link to that sometime because um, I kind of uh, um, told some interesting stories about uh, Mr. Almanza and the um, JBS and him going to take that job and everything. It, it, got, it was a pretty interesting talk. Mike got me kind of wound up before I went up on stage. I was gonna say, did he get you fired oh, up yeah. before you had yeah, to get Mike, up and talk? Because I could totally Mike, see that. Mike is really, really good about that. Yep. Oh yeah, I was like, he was our fourth episode uh, when we started the podcast, 
And I, I like thought about it for weeks. I was like, Brian, I can't stop thinking <laughs> about everything you said. Mike, Mike and yeah. Will are both uh, really, really good friends. Uh, I've known both of them for a long time, been out to the, both of their places. Uh, Mike's been here uh, to the farm several times. And you guys, like, you guys definitely see eye to eye about, you know, meat packer concentration and the lack of market transparency and, and why that that's such a bad thing. Yeah, see the, um, uh, I, I see just about completely eye to eye with um, uh, Mike. Um, you know, Will's uh, got a scaled enough operation that I think he's uh, virtually gave up on the fact that there'll ever be a um, competitive commodity market again. But I, I see the same as uh, Mike because um, the I still, I don't know that we'd ever go back to the commodity market because we chose a different route, but I still don't think that long-term uh, niche producers survive or survive well without there being a um, fair and competitive um, commodity market, you know, because it comes back to that same thing, the problem we had with the chickens. If the other product is so dirt cheap and has no value mm -hmm. to any um, consumer anywhere, it's really, really difficult to sell something that does have some value that has some real true actual costs in it. Instead yeah. of trying to externalize the cost or exploit cheap right. labor, and yeah. cheap grain somewhere else. Right. So let, let's talk about supply chains. Her, are you experiencing a lot of supply chain disruptions? Are you seeing a lot of that? Uh, any of that stuff on your radar? Um, you know, you see it everywhere, but you know, we're, um, we're kind of fortunate in that. I think we're, um, we don't have, um, serious problems in it. Uh, like the materials for the plant, we buy our packaging materials, uh, several months at a time. So I don't think we're having problems there. Um, we, we have a really, um, uh, antiquated and probably too many tractors on the farm that, uh, um, so we don't have parts and issues like that. We don't really have a lot of um, specialty equipment per se, you know, don't uh, raise much crops. So we're not really seeing much um, supply chain issues. Now, um, the everything's going through the roof on uh, costs of everything that we use. But um, now I think that the yeah, like um, fertilizer and, you know, fertilizer, I saw the other day where China was said they're not going to export any phosphate in 2022, yep. which that's 40% of our, our phosphate supply for fertilizer. Um, you know, the, the one that, um, the one that uh, scares me a little bit, you know, the, um, we still feed a um, fair amount of corn, you know, because our um, pigs mm -hmm. and our poultry are, aren't ruminants. So we have to feed some corn right. and the, um, uh, I'm starting to hear an awful lot of farmers talk about their um, anhydrous and their nitrogen um, costs, um, and I haven't really tracked it completely, but they're talking about double and triple the cost. You know, the I I got a good enough understanding of crop production. I know that they can probably skimp for a while on their um, phosphorus and their potassium and still come up with these uh, trend line yields. Our U.S. corn supply um, without nitrogen 
those boys don't know how to raise corn without nitrogen. We don't, we don't have, right. we don't right. have corn crop if we don't have anhydrous and nitrogen in the United States. Cause you know, we want to talk about resiliency. We don't have any resiliency in the meat and poultry industry because of, you know, the, we slaughter almost all the cattle and, uh, 27 plants in 13 states 85 or 86 percent we slaughter 90 some percent of the pigs in about um, 40 plants in this country um, you know but uh, we raise all of this corn to feed the um, non-ruminant animals and it's hand to mouth on uh, nitrogen needs and it's all propped up uh, by huge amounts of inputs and man they they just plain won't do it without nitrogen and um, and at some point, you know, and I guess the, um, you know, in the grain farmers defense, uh, they, they've been really good for decades about continuing to produce corn and soybeans, whether they make any money or not. So I guess maybe they'll continue to go on because that's, that's just the history of crop farming in the United States. You know, so like corn farming, I think the number is 96, 97% of the acres planted of corn is not for human consumption. And, you know, then you can further break that down one and say, well, there's a lot that go to biofuels and there's some that go to corn oil and, you know, but yeah, a lot of it does go to livestock feed. And is it an efficient use of land? Maybe. Does it grow a lot per acre? Yeah. But what's the cost? What's the input cost? What do we need to haul, you know, and how much fossil fuel does it take? You know, because, a lot of those fertilizers come from natural gas as a raw feedstock. And how, how much of those fertilizers does it take and how much energy is it taking to actually grow this crop? And are we getting ahead by using it as biofuel at all? You know, th those well, are some of the real questions I have. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of, I guess, uh, as most people probably figured out, I'm probably a little radical and probably don't normally always fit in in uh, rural America too well, but you know, the, um, the rough numbers and you want to really fire up uh, um, corn and soybean farmers, the rough numbers uh, with my calculations is somewhere around um, 10,000 uh, miles per acre, uh, planting corn, turning it into ethanol, putting it into a um, gas car. Uh, that same acre of land uh, is about um, uh, 750,000 uh, miles um, with, solar panels as a solar farm uh, running through an electric car. So, I mean, it's, you know, what, 7,500 times uh, more efficient uh, to take those same land, you know, but uh, farmers are like, oh man, we can't take any of this uh, land away because we need to continue to raise corn. We take 40 some percent of the corn, turn it into ethanol. And the best study you can find is about 1.35 units of energy produced for every unit of energy that went into producing the corn. I, I mean, think that's a bullshit number. I think it's a negative. You think it's, I, I mean, I, really? I wouldn't, it wouldn't surprise me, but um, you know, in lots of ways, isn't our, um, uh, the CAFO industry, the confinement livestock industry, isn't the feedlots, isn't the ethanol industry, really just to deal with the fact that we've had massive overproduction and agriculture for yeah. decades and we've we've yes. propped it up because we had to they had to do something with this corn instead of just piling it up everywhere and letting it rot so they turn it into ethanol uh they raise more pigs that the chinese and the brazilians own um to yes. export to somewhere 
that is just a really, really fragile system that has just economically gutted rural America. The economic metrics of rural America look worse than the inner cities. And yet they're just saying, oh, this is all grand and we're feeding the world. We're feeding the world, but we're not even feeding the farmers in rural America. <laughs> and yeah, and you know, you touched on something about that we're taking these these pigs that are owned by foreign interests. We're going to run them through a slaughterhouse that's owned by foreign interests, and we're feeding them corn and soybeans that's heavily subsidized by the American taxpayer, just so meat can be cheap. But what, like, what, what what's just right under the surface is that all these meat packers, and I'll call them out: Smithfield, JBS, Monfort. They're all owned by by either Brazil or China, and that's where all our subsidies are going. That's where the that's where the crop subsidies that the government pays farmers they end up in the bank accounts of the big packers. Right. I mean, it's real easy to connect the dots, but you know, enough people's pockets are getting lined that we as a society choose not to connect the dots. And it, it's it's weird. It's like we almost have blinders on and. You got to wonder why, why aren't people talking about these things? You know, why has this all been buried? Why, why isn't this on front page news? Meat packers make billions to overseas investors while American ranchers starve. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's a really, really good question because, you know, some of us talk about it but it doesn't feel like the, um, you know, and I don't feel like that when we talk to um, consumers or taxpayers or the average American, you know, everybody, except for a handful of farmers that think they're going to be the last one standing, everyone else agrees with what we say, but uh, man, it's really hard to get enough momentum to actually get states and Washington DC to really do something different about it. And I think a lot of it comes back to that whole, that I mentioned before, agency capture. Um, you know, the, these corporations um, have some really powerful people in some really high places. And our government on virtually every decision makes choices that are contrary to the interest of independent family farms. And they've done it for decades and they just continue to do it. Well, we've, I think we've done a great job of kind of laying out the problem. So how do we fix it? Um, you know, I tell people, I think we got to do four things. I think the we have to start with um, subsidy reform. We have to quit um, encouraging through subsidies, the industrialization of agriculture and the, um, uh, you know, the proliferation of uh, money going towards just a handful of people. The um, uh, subsidies need to be uh, about... Um, real food rather than uh, just corn and soybeans if there's gonna be subsidies. Um, uh, so we need subsidy reform. Uh, we need uh, labeling reform. Uh, people need to be able to go into the marketplace and they need to be able to trust what is on that package. Uh, you know, rattled off a whole bunch of them, but you know, whether it's uh, natural, whether it's um, uh, organic, grass-fed, uh, gestation crate-free, uh, you name it, um, cage-free. Uh, people, if they're going to spend a premium for it, and it, this is in the interest of both niche and commodity producers, uh, that those are actually transparent 
and meaningful because uh, they harm both the um, niche and the commodity producers because they clearly take away part of our demand, but they're also harming the commodity producers because it's just another step in this uh, progression where they take commodity products, the packer and the retailer get a premium for it, the commodity producer gets zero premium for that. Um, we need antitrust enforcement. Uh, we need the um, uh, Federal Trade Commission, Department of Justice, the Packer and Stockyards Administration, they actually have to do their job. Uh, there's glaring examples, uh, you know, the um, uh, sheep slaughter plant out in Colorado last year, uh, JBS, the largest importer of uh, lamb into the United States, um, buys up a um, sheep slaughter plant with the sole intention of shuttering it for um, sheep slaughter. It had the capacity to slaughter about 20% of the um, lambs in the Western United States. Uh, it's no longer a lamb slaughter plant. JBS didn't buy that for um, financial interest uh, to own that plant. They bought that in their financial interest to get rid of competition. Um, we have laws on the books, uh, Clayton Act, Sherman Act, um, Packer and Stockyards Act um, that uh, make it clear that um, we actually need competitive markets in this country and that we're not supposed to allow individual corporations to get big enough to make decisions that could impact the market. Every single one of those uh, four um, corporations that you mentioned before are big enough that their individual decisions impact the marketplace. We have packing plants that are big enough that whether there's a fire, whether there's Russian hackers, whether there's um, COVID issues, one plant has an impact on the marketplace. We're a smart enough and an affluent enough society that we should not have allowed that to happen. And we're an affluent and smart enough society that we should go in a separate direction. Uh, food security is national security and we have to enforce antitrust laws. They're on the books. It's time that the um, Federal Trade Commission, Department of Justice and the USDA um, goes back to work. Um, and then the final thing um, is that um, we need some inspection uh, reform. Uh, small plants, um, very small plants especially, um, if they're going to um, get a chance to um, operate and function, uh, they have to um, have a reasonable um, inspection and there has to be some safeguards in place for when they get both of them uh, for the consumer and the plant standpoint, those crazies and those lazies that I like to talk about in the inspection. Um, USDA uh, Food Safety Inspection Service is expending a huge amount of resources uh, for um, modernization of uh, poultry and pork and they're working on beef and they're doing that uh, to cut their labor force. But the biggest reason that they're doing that is that they're um, doing that because this new inspection systems makes it so the lines more consistently run at full and even faster line speeds. They won't tell anybody but that, but that's the realistic reason. They, they, don't, they have staffing issues, so they eliminate part of the staffing issues by making the plant do part of the inspection. And if they don't have as many employees show up under the old inspection systems, like poultry, for example, Every inspector didn't show up. The plant had to run 35 birds less per minute. Under the new inspection system, the plant's the one that has to do that inspection. 
They just have an inspector at the end of the line. They can be 50% short staffed and the plant's still running at full speed. Before, if they'd have been 50% short staffed, the plant would have run at 50%. So the new inspection systems are really about making sure that the new plants can run at full speed. They're putting in virtually no effort to make it so that we have more resilient, robust, and appropriate, um, uh, oops, sorry, my phone called. Um, they're putting in no effort at all um, to make it so that we have resilient, robust, and appropriate um, inspection systems uh, for little plants. Their answer always for oh, why there isn't little plants is that these people just need more resources. We actually have the resources available now. There's groups like the Niche Meat Processors Assistance Network, uh, lots of the extension services. The available resources for little plants are much greater now. Um, the um, you know, talk about my plant, for example, compared to the, the modern inspection plant, we get three USDA inspectors a day, uh, one full-time, one that's at our farm eight hours a day, uh, the veterinarian that's on a patrol, he normally shows up for a couple hours a day, and then we run a second processing shift, so we get a patrol inspector for a couple hours there. The um, One of the modern pork inspection plants, 35 miles up the road, that does 8,000 to 11,000 pigs a day, they get four inspectors. We get, get three. You're no, serious. I'm serious. I'm serious. And you know, the- um, Well, that's, that's and, why the rules favor the big guys. Well, you know, and um, there's a certain amount no matter how small you get, there's still a certain amount of inspection that is required. But you know, the my argument uh, would be that um, USDA has completely dragged its feet over this cooperative state inspection system. That was initially in the 2002 Farm Bill. USDA finally promulgated uh, um, regulations so that there could be a cooperative state inspection plant, and that's where a state inspected plant can use a federal legend and can sell across state lines. They finally did that in 2014. So it was, they were told to do it in 2002 Farm Bill. They got around to it in 2014. The, on the modern inspection stuff, um, they were told not to do it, and they had five plants that they were allowed to do for a pilot project. They added the plant down the road here as number six when they were told by Congress not to add anymore. So, you know, their attitude is that let's go out of our way to make it easier for, and I wouldn't necessarily say easier. They want to go out of their way to make it so that the big guys cost of production is lower and they're more consistently able to run. I think they go out of their way that on the opposite end to make it so that the little guys cost of production is higher and we're not consistent. And I, I think that they need to level that playing field as much as they need to um, worry about the leveling the food safety playing field. You know, you're right. I, I can't disagree, but I can also see that this is a case where they've kind of done the minimum necessary to keep, right. to keep food flowing. Because like you said, food security is national security. The only thing scarier to the government than than a Bible thumping Republican that has a gun is, is one that's hungry. I mean, you take away people's food for just a couple of days and they're going to get upset real fast. So like food riots is the one thing the government wants to avoid at all costs. That means we've got to keep the meat supply flowing. Right. But um, at some point and uh, you know, um, before COVID, I was probably one of those uh, tinfoil cap 
uh, paranoid um, conspiracy theory people when he was talking to people saying, you know, the big cities really only have uh, three days, 72 hours worth of food supply. And if this food supply doesn't keep cranking, um, you literally could run out of food in the grocery store. You know, before 2020, people looked at you and said, you're nuts. Now they're like, hmm, what was this Greg saying over here? Because, you know, that, that's a reality. And, you know, where do I go to, to learn to, how to plant a garden? Right, right. Up, up to a certain point, this whole idea of industrialization, specialization, um, you know, it's extremely efficient and productive when it's all working. But up to a certain point, they, they, I believe that they finally somewhat realize that you can go too far pushing that whole cheap food and scale. Biggest fragile. To the point it becomes yeah. fragile. And then it's no longer long term. It's not cheap, um, efficient, secure food. And we've got to that point as a country to, to where um, food, when it's working, is really, really cheap, really, really efficient. And now we can argue all day, and I'd, I'd be on the side arguing that it, that has huge amount of hidden costs, not good for the animal, not oh, good yeah, for people. Yeah, look at the health people, of, not, of the average American. Not good for rural America, all of that stuff. But that argument never really got very far with people. But nowadays, most people realize when you start talking about it, we should not have let foreign entities own and control our food supply. Um, we, right. we should not have allowed it to become so consolidated, so industrialized to the point that it's no longer secure. And people realize it's no longer secure. You know what? It was uh, about a month ago. There was a couple cases of BSE in Brazil. Barely heard a peep about it in our news. But China overnight shut down beef imports from brazil um they had a case i think two weeks ago uh, i think that was in britain do you remember ck yep it was in england yeah. it was in britain yep yeah barely heard a blip about it on the news you know seven years ago the cow that killed christmas you know that didn't even get into the food supply oh, yeah. but that tanked our cattle market you know like mm -hmm. is there any consistency is, is there anything that you can point to that says no, the cattle market's not fraudulent or it's actually working like it should. Or is it just a totally, totally fraudulent system? Oh, it's a fraudulent system. The, the largest uh, processor of beef in the United States is a criminal organization. Yeah. Um, you know, the, yeah. we, I tell people all the time, uh, we have laws in this country. Um, and in fact, um, uh, I'll share with you on Twitter afterwards, the, um, I got a letter back from the USDA Food Safety Inspection Service because I've been hounding them for years. The, um, uh, the Meat and Poultry Act does not allow um, convicted felons to be in the meat business in the United States. They actually enforce it. Oh, yes, really? Really. They actually enforce it on uh, small and very small plants. Um, they but don't the Batista brothers have never been convicted in the U.S. Well, court. Uh, you sound just like Mr. Kicker. You sound just like the undersecretaries every time I told them that. Up until October of 2020, they'd been convicted then. Uh, they finally had got convicted over that uh, um, rotten beef and the um, fraud and the bribery um, in a U.S. court. And they also got convicted over um, price fixing in a U.S. court. So 
So, that so, one. so yeah. I immediately sent off a letter to the USDA Food Safety Inspection Service Administrator because they told me, I bet you they told me 20 times, Greg, yes, um, uh, but our laws do not cover um, felonies in foreign countries. Well, then they had felonies in the United States. I got this long letter back. Uh, they're supposedly investigating it, but I don't know. You know, the as I, I think it's difficult to um, point to um, there not being uh, fraudulent activities that go on in the um, meat industry because there are. The, the largest processor of beef in the United States has a track record around the globe of convicted felonies. I mean, that's, we, we have laws, we're not supposed to have that. Um, Billions and fines we, and bribery charges. We, we, we just choose not to enforce it. I, I do think one, one thing that the other point I like to make about um, what's going on in the beef industry now is the, and mm -hmm. I'm sure you guys have all heard it before. Um, you know, when I told people that we ought to have uh, more packing plants, uh, we ought to actually have more farmers in the United States. Uh, we ought to have a larger percentage of our production coming from uh, niche producers direct to consumers. The answer always from the Farm Bureau types and the industrial food types was that uh, the American consumer cannot afford that, that we need cheap food. Well, that's, a, um, that's not accurate because uh, look at the spread right now between uh, live beef and what the packers are getting for them. It's $700 to $1,000 been running. It, it ran, it's ran a little bit higher than that. National Beef's last quarter, um, netted 700 bucks uh, per um, steer that they slaughtered. Um, small processing plants don't charge $700 for processing. So somebody's lying when they say that the American consumer can't afford the um, processing cost of very small processing in the US. The American consumer's paying it um, to the big packer and the big retailer right now. They, they can afford it, they're paying the bill. Yeah, and I think Mike, Mike Calicrate even has data that shows that like his small plants are twice as efficient at breaking down yep. meat per man as the big guys are. Right. You know, so it's not necessarily a matter of efficiency. It's just, you know, scale and minimizing that governmental, that, that regulatory compliance cost. And, and, you know, so, to some degree, I guess, if you're the Batista brothers, it's just a, another bribe away. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they, um, I, I'm sure you, you know, the story, but, uh, you know, they, um, bribed somewhere between 1500 and 2100, um, politicians and inspectors in Brazil. And we were the only, um, developed country in the world that did not immediately cut off, um, imports from Brazil when that, um, bribery scandal broke. And I shit you not, three days after the person that made the decision in the United States to not cut them off. Um, uh, Al Almanza, the um, administrator for USDA Food Safety Inspection Service, three days after he retired, he took a $5 million signing bonus to go work for JBS as Global Quality Assurance Vice President. We have laws in this country for that too. Two-year, four-year, and lifetime ethics rules on whether you can take those kind of jobs. Just say a, that that's nowhere close to a conflict of interest. That, um, we as a country didn't cut them off till Sonny Purdue was confirmed. Sonny Purdue cut them off. 
Um, and why does that, why does everybody not just up in arms over that? That is, that is not a, just a conflict of interest. That's criminal. Um, I'm sure that if I run into Al Almanza somewhere, he's not going to like me because I, I tell everybody he ought to be sitting in jail with the Batista brothers. So what would happen? What would happen if the DOJ did crack down on him tomorrow and, and put the Batista brothers in jail? Do you think that would like it? Is there regulatory is there regulatory uh, relief? Like, is there really anything that'll help the meat markets and, and dissolve these things? Do you have any hope that the government will actually use the weapons in their toolbox to, you know, um, to enforce Packers and Stockyard Yacht and antitrust rules? Um, you know, I, I have a little bit of hope. Uh, you know, we put a, um, as a country, we put a person in as the Federal Trade Commissioner Chairman that I uh, think she's going to do a wonderful job. Uh, we got a few people. Um, uh, Rohit um, uh, has, uh, is really strong on these issues. Uh, both the president and the secretary have uh, really, really strong uh, concentration um, advisors in uh, Tim Wu and Andy Green. Um, you know, but we still got an awful lot up there that um, uh, don't uh, take these issues very serious. And uh, I don't think we've got a um, Supreme Court, and I, I, I could be wrong, but um, I've never had any dealings with uh, anyone at DOJ that um, really likes to get um, serious about these issues. But you know, I think we already have uh, one of the highest percentages of incarcerated uh, populations in the world. Uh, yes. um, we yes. probably ought to add some money in the budget for uh, more prisons if uh, we're going to really go after the criminals in the meat business, because it's a lot of them. <laughs> or let some of the. What do you think it is? Is it, is it just like, because it's food, it's not that big of a crime. Like they're not weighing this as a really a huge injustice where they're waiting, you know, drugs. Um, and stuff like that. Like, I, I'm just confused where the disconnect is. I, I really um, think it comes back to that whole um, feed the world cheap food policy. And I really think that yeah. they believe this is a necessary evil in order to feed society and keep the masses um, calm. Uh, and that, you know, if um, JBS is going to send a little bit of rotten beef to the United States, which was 11% rejected at the border and normal percentage is half a percent for paperwork. 11% real food safety issues. Ah, you know, that kind of stuff just happens every once in a while. American what people- What happened to you if 11% of the pork that went out of your door was- Oh. You'd you know, get that, shut down. Yeah, we'd get shut down. And you know, the um, that's one of the big differences and that, that'd be one of the arguments uh, for um, a more sane and reasonable inspection system on little processors is that there's actually accountability um, when you know your end customers. Um, I couldn't send a rotten product out. I would have no yeah. customer base. Um, but, you know, if it's a nameless boxed uh, product going somewhere else, um, you know, oh, we're really sorry. We, we don't know how that slipped through. Yeah. We're sorry. We'll really, never do that again. Really any accountability in that? I mean, there really isn't any accountability in our system. So how do you feel about traceability? Um, you know, the um, 
my take on it from us personally, I, I think the um, traceability for what we do is, uh, is absolutely essential. Um, I think that um, a lot of these things that they're trying to push on to um, farmers and ranchers uh, comes right back to that uh, greenwashing, those labeling issues, the um, traceability, the um, round table for sustainable beef. They're just trying to pass um, costs off on to um, farmers and ranchers uh, without uh, paying them any kind of uh, premium. And I think that's wrong. And I, I think that if we actually had a truly competitive market, uh, farmers would get choices of uh, who they would get to sell to. You know, in the hog industry, you can't sell pigs, uh, commodity pigs without your um, pork quality assurance uh, level three um, certification. If there was more choices in packers, there would probably be packers that would pay a little bit less and say, hey, we don't care if you have that because we have a customer base that doesn't need it. But all of them get together and say, hey, you got to have that. None of them pay anything for it. It's just a necessary required evil, the um, traceability. And then the hypocrisy of the industry, you know, like um, uh, they talk about what their traceability costs, but at the same time, you know, um, Proposition 12 is a good example. Uh, they're all up in arms over the um, uh, given gestating sows uh, 24 square feet instead of 14 square feet. I think both of them are just way too uh, few a square feet for a sow because neither one of them, the sow doesn't get to express its natural instincts. Or, but, um, but regardless, the, um, uh, the industry always tells you, and you've seen it everywhere, that, oh, we know exactly where all this meat comes from. We can trace it all back. And we, we got 100% traceability. When they tell you that hey, the, um, you've got to segregate this uh, port to go to California versus uh, not. They're like, oh, that's going to add too much cost to us. Like, you just got done telling us that you knew where every single bit of it was and you could track it all through the plant. Now you're saying it's going to cost too much to track it all through the plant. Which story is correct here? Because if it's going to cost you a lot more, you're not doing it now. It I keep saying, shake the hand that feeds you. And, and it's account and it's an accountability thing, right? Right. You know, I'm not going to sell you rotten meat. You're not going to sell me rotten meat. You know, we're not going to grow and try to give up, sell rotten vegetables. That's just, you know, that's not what people do. That's right. not what a person does to, to another person. Maybe a corporation might do that because some underlings just like, ah, I don't care. It's not my deal. We'll go ahead and ship that anyway. And there's, there's no accountability and the bigger a corporation or organization gets the, the less clear that chain of accountability is. Right. So, you know, we're, we're talking about cheap food and let's talk about why that's such a bad thing and, and how fragile is our food supply really? Uh, yeah. I mean, the whole, the whole concept of cheap food um, you know, food should be um, available to people, but I don't, this whole idea that it should be cheap um, was really not a wise plan. Um, you know, it, like I said before, it's just gutted um, rural America economically. Um, you know, the, I was raised as a pig farmer, so I like to talk about pigs more so than cattle, but um, 
when I was um, my son's age, there was 600,000 hog farmers in the United States. And I've got a degree in uh, economics from uh, Purdue University. Don't claim to be an um, economist, but I do have a degree in economics. And, you know, there's, there's some terms that I think that we should all get familiar with. And one of them is the velocity of money. And there's uh, been several studies and, you know, the, um, I think we forget most of them now, but it was uh, way more common that they were uh, printed and shared a lot when the hog industry was actually consolidated. But the studies show that because um, of velocity of money, the, um, those family hog farms, those funds that came in for those pigs, those would circulate in that economy up to seven times. You know, it went to Main Street, it went to the local hardware, it went to the um, feed mill, it went to farmers down the road that was growing the corn for the feed mill. You know, it went to, you name it. Uh, we actually had Main Streets and we actually had rural communities when we had uh, family farms. Now that money um, just is gone because Smithfield, the largest owner of pigs in the United States, um, is a Chinese corporation. Um, the second that um, those pigs are, uh, they're, they're just paying the farmer to raise them because they own the pigs. Uh, there's none of that economic activity taking place out here in rural America. China's the one benefiting from it now. Instead you know, so of having 20 small family farms with a couple hundred right. pigs, you've got one right. mega farm that employs two people instead of 20 small family farms. And each one of those family farms is going to go into town. They're going to support the grocery store, the auto parts store, the dealer, the grocery store, all the small businesses in town that make a small business Main Street just hum. My friend right. Steve Stratford, he loves to say, cows build towns. Yep. And, yeah. you know, and I don't, I don't want to exclude the pigs from that either, but, you know, to some extent, pigs build towns, cows build towns, right. not in the our, finishing animals, the breeding animals. That's what you got to right. have to build the town. Right. And in our area, um, you know, we're in the corn belt. Uh, in our area, it was um, sows or milk cows. Uh, they built the towns. And when those disappeared, um, you know, uh, it, it's kind of uh, camouflaged how uh, we've gutted uh, rural America on the eastern side of the Corn Belt. It's uh, much clearer on the western side of the Corn Belt because we still have lots of other people uh, that um, live in rural America. Not as many because uh, when I was in school, there was 140 in my class in school. Uh, my kids, there was 90 in a classes. Uh, that's not as bad as the decline out in the Western Corn Belt, but it's still a big decline. And it's only gonna um, accentuate or it's gonna accelerate here as our rural communities get older and don't have as many kids. Um, but, you know, it's, um, we, we've lost huge amounts of our um, rural population. Uh, I tell people the um, most valuable things that we've sent off from the farm uh, has been our topsoil and our kids. And uh, we really ought to change both of those, uh, but we ought to bring the um, we ought to bring the sows back. Um, and I think the only realistic way we can do it is they have to be direct marketed because there's not a realistic um, commodity market for um, independent hog farmers anymore. Um, and we ought to bring the um, uh, milk cows back, uh, but um, that's getting destroyed now. My county is about half Amish, 
and uh, we still have a bunch of uh, small um, certified organic uh, dairy farms and uh, they haven't told them that they're not picking up their milk, uh, but they're running them out of business because uh, these um, small dairies that are actually certified organic dairies, they can't compete with those 10 and 20,000 cow confinement uh, dairies that are quote unquote organic by some certifier. So, I mean, our community is going to be destroyed. The next county over from us, Steuben County, which is the um, farthest northeast county in Indiana. When I was young, there was 400 dairies in Steuben County. Some uh, rolling uh, um, ground guys added value to, um, you know, because they planted forages, turned it into milk, fed their um, cows, raised the family. Out of those 400, there's four left. 99% have disappeared in my lifetime. Um, you know, the um, feed mills are disappearing. Um, the main streets are gone. Um, you know, so I mean, it's um, cheap, cheap food has real costs. Real costs to rural America. Yes. Yep. Yeah, the whole, the whole concept was, um, uh, it did not work out for consumers um, from a, um, a food quality, food choice, um, human health standpoint, didn't work out for farmers or rural America at all. And the whole myth that we're feeding the world, like, ah, that just, it bothers me so much now when I hear, when I hear somebody say, oh, well, I'm, we're feeding the world. Like, okay, what are you getting ready to do? I'm getting my combine. We're going to go combine some soybeans. Like, oh, you're feeding cows, maybe in another part of the world, but you know, those soybeans are probably going to feed cows, maybe pigs. How, like, how do we how do we shift away from this mindset and start talking about what we're really growing in this country and what we're importing and what we're exporting and and becoming more more self sufficient more food secure within our own borders? Um, you know, I, I think it's a lot easier conversation to have with people um, uh, since the pandemic, but I still think it's a um, uh, we've got a lot of work to do to be able to create a um, these local and regional um, food systems that actually feed people rather than this quote unquote, feed the world. And you know, that whole feed the world thing is uh, crazy anyways, because uh, what we're really doing is uh, um, sending raw commodities to other places that have money because we're not sending uh, food um, to people that really need it. Um, you know, the environmental working group uh, has showed all of that. It's got some really interesting data. Of where we actually export to. Um, the other thing is that um, uh, these people don't want to talk about is that um, uh, most years we're a net food importer. Um, we're not feeding the world. We're, um, you know, and I live in uh, Indiana, um, arguably one of the um, uh, centrally located in one of the five uh, bread baskets of the world. Um, Indiana um, brings in 90% of the food that we eat in Indiana. We don't grow enough food here to um, say so. And we're one of the largest, um, most capable food producing areas in the world. Um, you know, the um, why is that? And why aren't people really, really upset about that? People should be like, 
hey, especially since COVID, people should be, um, you know, we should take more of a European approach. Uh, we should value our farmers. Uh, we should value food. Um, you know, uh, too many people, um, you know, food is uh, something that you stuff in your face uh, after going through the um, fast food line. Um, you know, we don't really sit down um, and enjoy food um, or not enough anyways. And, uh, you know, our whole attitude around food and our whole attitude around this uh, feed the world and cheap food, all of that has to um, change some. And we have to actually value our rural communities and our rural communities, unlike what the um, Farm Bureau and the National Cattlemen's Beef Association, um, we, we truly need to connect with um, uh, urban areas and connect with consumers. And it's the, um, we need to listen to them, not their idea of that we need to preach to them that industrial ag is fine because industrial ag's not fine, um, but they need us and we need them. It shouldn't be a con um, controversy and it shouldn't be an adversarial relationship like uh, industrial ag likes to make it. Um, you know, the, um, our, our consumers, our customers really like us. Uh, they come out to the farm, uh, you know, um, th they're excited about food that tastes good, excited about food that's good for people. Um, you know, the, um, when's the last time you've seen anybody with the, um, you know, you watch ag Twitter and all those ag advocates, they're fighting with consumers all the time, you know, um, trying to tell them, oh, this stuff we're doing is completely fine. That stuff we're doing is completely fine. Uh, we're really not, we don't have any impact in the fact that, um, you know, type two di diabetes is like the highest percentage in the U.S. is anywhere in the world. And um, the fact that all of our rivers in all of these hog producing states aren't uh, fit uh, water to even have people in them. It's like, oh, that's not really us doing that. And it's like, it's probably got to be the geese. And, you know, it's like, <laughs> come on, people. Uh, do people really buy all those stories? I think they do. You know, if you hear a lie repeated enough, you'll think it's true, right? Yeah, because I mean, I guess the feed the world um, has been repeated enough. Farmers just say it like crazy. And, and, you know, you summed it up really well when you were talking about the whole connecting the dots between the fact that highly subsidized corn uh, with um, confinement animals owned by the Chinese and the Brazilians to be exported that we're largely just uh, subsidizing uh, foreign people's um, food and gotten rural America in the process. Oh, but there's dollar generals popping up everywhere. Those are good jobs, right? <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm sure we're all on the, on the Calicrate train about the dollar general hate. Uh, you can tell when the, um, economic activity in your communities got really, really bad. The first thing they do is build a dollar general. I think that's a sign that your um, community's in the tank. You're in trouble. Yep. So how do you feel about, about the food supply chains going into next year? Do you think we're going to continue to see these, these widespread, widespread supply chain disruptions with uh, shortages in like ocean shipping shortages and trucking, like the shortage isn't in trucking. Like it's like 
not in goods it's in actually moving the goods from here the port logistics right yes the logistics like there aren't enough truck drivers or aren't enough people to unload the ships like do you think that's gonna do you think that's gonna clear up soon or do you think that's gonna get worse oh i think it's gonna get worse and i i think it's gonna get worse because of uh partially because of labor but i think it's gonna get worse the um and it comes back to that whole concentration and consolidation um, and where um, effective markets and where there's actually um, some competition in the marketplace, uh, you have people that are, um, you know, wanting to grow their business, go out um, and uh, get some uh, more business. And I think the chicken industry right now is an excellent example. Those guys got really, really short on labor. Um, and then they got really, really worried because if you look at the um, uh, uh, biology, um, chickens are probably one of the riskiest um, when you have uh, shortages um, at your processing plant because uh, Cornish cross chicken can gain a pound a week. Um, so in, uh, in 10 days of processing or 10 days of slaughter at the plant, the chicken goes from being too small to way too big. So if your plants closed down for a few days, um, you never get caught back up on chickens. You know, cattle, um, yeah, it takes a long time to get caught back up, but you're not euthanizing cattle. Pigs, they euthanize some of them, uh, but it, you got a little bit bigger window. Um, and the, um, after they, the chicken industry did that for a while, I'm 100% convinced that they figured out, hey, we don't have to um, try to cut each other's throats. Um, Let's just keep telling the world we don't have enough chicken and just keep jacking the price up. Um, chicken, um, the, those guys are making an awful lot of money now, too. Not even uh, raising as many chickens and not running their plants full. And I don't think they have any desire to go back to um, full speed. Uh, we get the um, hog in the um, uh, industry to the same way. Um, they'll do the same thing. The Packers are doing it right now on the right. um, beef, you know, with their margins, um, you know, they're, they're coming up with uh, they're using COVID. They're using every other kind of excuse. Some of it's a uh, real supply Plant fire, right. cyber attack, right? Some, some of it is um, real supply chain issues and it's really hard to decipher. And as you get industries that are way too consolidated, um, you know, the, we come right back to that thing of one individual entity can make decisions that is in their best financial interest to not do something rather than to do something. And so is it all supply chain issues or is it too much concentration? We learned from history. We should never let it get this concentrated and supply chain issues are going to be a problem, but concentration is a bigger issue. Oh, but it'll be different this time, right? It'll be different. Uh, yeah. Won't we? yeah. Yeah. That's always that's always the, the human condition trap. It'll be different next time. We we're smarter than we were then. It'll be different next time. Yeah. So well, Greg, it's uh man, it's it's kind of flown by. What uh is there anything you want to know from me or CK since this is our first time together? Yeah, nice to meet you. <laughs> yeah. Um so um, what what is it that you do out there now? Your um, Twitter handle is what Red Hill Rancher. Yeah, Red Hills Rancher. That's you know pretty consistent across all the social media. Uh, we do yep. the podcast under Ranching Reboot. Um, 
I guess I can tell a little bit of my story for those that don't know. I uh, I am part owner and operator of a 7,000 acre um, cattle ranch. It's all native range. I operate at fairly high stock densities, frequent moves. Um, I run some of my own cattle. Mostly I run custom cattle uh, through the summer. I keep my own through the winter. I've got uh, got some custom cattle coming in this winter as well. And I run Corriente Longhorn Cross cattle. I'm crossing them with beef, beef bulls with Angus this generation. And uh, I've got some other bulls thinking about for the next couple of generations. Um, so that's, that's kind of me in a nutshell. Um, family, my dad took over this place in I think 1980, yeah, 85. Um, I came back from the Navy in 2006, started my grazing business in 2008. And by 2011, I was kind of running the whole place. And since 2016, I've been running it pretty much one hand, single-handed. How long is your grazing season out there? Uh, I'm on green grass from about April 15th to October 15th. So I get, okay. I get like a good solid 180 days of good green, mm -hmm. good okay. green grass. And I'll get a lot of cool season growth through the winter time too. So there's only about, there's about 45 days in the late summer, early fall. And there's another 60 to 70 days in the winter where it's too cold to grow anything. Okay. And no sheep, all cattle. No sheep, all cattle. Um, pretty sure the ranch was paid for with sheep back in the 30s because it has some sheep fencing on it. Like, okay. Uh, there's, there's quite a bit of page wire fencing on it. And, uh, some, of the, some of the urban legends and family legends say that the family paid for a lot of it with sheep back in the 30s. You, you put a hundred uh, cattle guys in a room, you'll normally have a hundred guys that would never have sheep on their farm, right? Oh, it's funny. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we, we really like ours. It's, um, it's weird. Um, my dad and grandpa sold theirs and uh, sold the use in 1968. My dad still cusses about the things. And I think these uh, new fence chargers and uh, black plastic pipe and them being hair sheep and, uh, not turning the rams in so that they don't lamb before the middle of April. I mean, we, we made a lot of drastic changes compared to what they did back in the day. And uh, they've honestly been really, really enjoyable. And, uh, you know, that's a market where there's many buyers and many sellers and sheep are actually uh, bringing decent money. As making money. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's kind of, it's kind of, uh, I mean, we've got sheep now, so maybe that'll probably change, but. <laughs> you know, watch the market will collapse now, but, but it's been, it's been fun to watch. Sheep and goats are, you know, they're, they're pretty, cons they're pretty good money makers from what I understand. That's what I'm hearing from everyone who's got cattle enterprises and sheep and goat. They're like the sheep and goats are paying for the cattle to stay on the ranch. Basically. Um, well, I think I've like Conry's said it a couple times on working cows that, you know, that there's folks that keep the, uh, keep the horses up front for the tourists the cows around the house for the neighbors and the sheep out back to pay for it all. <laughs> yeah. 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 Interesting. So, well, Greg, have we left anything else on the table today? Any, uh, any resources you want to share any, any place you want to send people, anything you want to get off your chest, any big talking points you got? Um, anybody has questions about, um, uh, processing the, um, I follow the, um, niche meat processors assistance network um, email listserv. I think they're one of the best resources for anybody interested in uh, direct marketing meat, um, 
or especially for uh, building or operating uh, processing plants. Um, and then I always recommend everybody the um, uh, join our, my daughter and I have a, um, a Facebook group, uh, Politics from the Pastures. Uh, we like to discuss uh, all of these issues around the, um, you know, the, the big four that I brought up, the um, subsidies, the antitrust enforcement, the labeling issues, the inspection things, and any other uh, issues uh, globally that impact uh, rural America farmers, our food supply. Great. And uh, what's your Twitter handle? Just, I know what it is. I mean, we're friends, but just um, tell me what it is so I can make sure I get it right in the show notes. Uh, that's, that's a good question. I'm not really, is it at G Gunthorpe? I'm not sure. You know, I'll, I'll find out. I'll make sure I get your correct Twitter handle in the show. Yeah. Cause um, yeah. Uh, um, the um, I'm a much more uh, civil and reserved person on Facebook than I am on Twitter. I, I like to, I like to drag everybody imaginable. If I'm, if I've got an issue, I don't got no problem tagging the um, secretary and tagging a couple federal trade commissioners and some uh, you, you name it. Twitter where you go to get mad and sling poo at everybody. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I, I kind of like it every once in a while. It's kind of fun. I'm sure some of them are like, is there a way to unfollow this Greg Gunthorpe guy? Yeah. Where's that block button at? Yeah. Right. But, you know, legally they can't do that. Like the um, uh, government speech, including the checkoff people. I have to point that out to them every once in a while too. So the national pork producers and the national cattlemen's beef association. Um, Trump got that Supreme court thing if, as long as it's government speech. And so they like to try to block a farmer every once in a while. I'm like, no, nah, I don't think you can do that because if you guys aren't government speech, those checkoffs are unconstitutional because that's the only reason the Supreme Court said you guys could still be around. Probably better unblock them. Uh, then tag bag marketing service to point it out to them <laughs> at USDA. Be like, hey, can you check into this? You probably have a fan club over there. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I need a few more so that we get a few more people raising hell with them. Well, I'll come help you raise a little bit of hell on Twitter. Okay, that'll be fun. CK, do you have anything? No, I'm a. I just pretty. I'm interested to see how the supply shortage conversation plays out. I think that kind of like adversity through a lot of the ranches who have become successful is is because they were forced to shut down or pivot their model. It's created more resiliency. So I'm really interested to see what the good side of things comes with supply shortages and people really kind of unveiling their food system. So. Where there's, there's opportunity. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. there's opportunity there. There's opportunities in the future, you know, for local food systems. Well, it's been a great episode. I think that's a good place to end. You guys have a great week. We'll catch you later. Yeah. Thank you.